Just to be clear, um, this is an authentic Delta ASA Connection shirt. I worked for them. I earned this. Um, so we know you have many options in your traveling conveniences, but thank you for choosing Highland this morning. And if you'll just leave your tray tables and seat backs in the upright position the whole time, because who knows where we're going. Um, so all that being said, we are in <clears throat> Man of Action, uh, the Gospel of Mark. It is the gospel that I have been tending to uh, suggest to people to begin uh, this journey with Jesus because of who Mark had in mind as he was writing to. He was writing to people who may or may not have any background in any of the uh, Jewish traditions or thought process. He was writing to a culture that was fast-paced. Um, if Twitter existed uh, back then, this, this would have been the group of people, the Romans, who would have been like, we just want, we just want the soundbite, man. That's all we want. We want the 140 characters. That's all I want to hear. That's all I want to see. And Mark just shows Jesus on the move, nonstop. You're kind of getting exhausted because it's like he's moving from one thing to the next, and he's on the move. And so with this gospel uh, uh, that Mark has given us, where we were last time, uh, when we finished previously on Man of Action, we were with the religious leaders. And we were with Jesus confronting the religious leaders on their thoughts of how things should be done. And we see Jesus healing people, and we see him doing all of these great things, and the result being, let's figure out how to kill this dude. Like, you're right. I mean, that's kind of what we do, you know. But the religious leaders, because they did not like how Jesus was speaking of himself and what he was doing and his actions, they began to plot to murder Jesus. And so right after this moment that we spent time in talking about last time, Jesus heads to the lake, not for some me time, but to keep working. Like, I know it says, you know, heads to the lake, and it's like, oh, he's going to chill with his homeboys, and no, he actually is going to work, and work hard, actually. Um, at the lake, all of these people start showing up. These crowds, massive, rowdy crowds begin to show up. They travel some as far as 120 miles away. People who have heard about Jesus' fame, about Jesus' actions, about what Jesus is saying, what Jesus is doing, and they are hearing about these things and going, we need to get to a place where we can see this with our own eyes. See, with, with all the social media stuff today, we'd have viral videos of Jesus doing what he was doing and saying what he was saying, but because they didn't have that then, they had to go, is it really worth it to go see this guy? And some of them were so desperate to go see Jesus, they're packing things up and they are traveling dangerous roads, bandits, sickness, illness, traveling with all these things. How'd they even know they'd make the road trip? How'd they know they'd survive the road trip? But they thought, if Jesus is who he says he is, then we need to get to him. We need to see where he's at. Now, you would think, oh, these people, they would probably act calm, cool, collected when they got to Jesus, but we see that that's not the case. They're actually shoving and pushing, and trying to get to Jesus, and it's uncomfortable. If you've ever been to like one of those concerts where it's a standing room only, and it's that cattle gate that you stand in front of, and if you've ever been in the front and gotten pushed into it, it hurts. Like those out-of-control people who are like, ah, whoever it is, you know, they run and push, and they shove, and they want to get as close as they can to the stage. Well, in this scenario, everybody had heard that if you were to just touch Jesus, you could be healed. If Jesus were to just touch you, you could be healed. 
But what amazes me about the text this morning is that Jesus actually thinks ahead about how he can be a blessing to these people. In verse 9 of chapter 3 in Mark, Jesus instructed his disciples to have a boat ready so the crowd would not crush him. He had healed many people that day, so all the sick people eagerly pushed forward to touch him. And whenever those possessed by evil spirits caught sight of him, the spirits would throw them to the ground in front of him, shrieking, You are the Son of God! But Jesus sternly commanded the spirits not to reveal who he was. Just at this description, like the fact that Jesus was like, You know what? This crowd that's coming to me, they're rowdy. They're desperate. They're out of control. I'm just going to get a boat ready so they don't crush me. Like when the crowd starts to push in, the boat kind of floats back. And he's like, guys, all right, I'm back. Here we go. You know, it's like, and then when the crowd would push in, float out just a little bit. And I'm coming back in. It's like he didn't, he didn't say get out of here. He knew what was coming and he prepared for it ahead of time. And I'm fascinated by that element to who Jesus is because these people were desperate. Like this was their last option for many of them. Many of them made this journey and if they didn't get to Jesus, I don't know if they would have made it home. I don't know that it, they would have made the trip back home, survived it physically. I don't know. We don't know all those details, but you have to think a desperate people making every attempt to get to Jesus, there's a reason behind it. Some of them wanted to see Jesus go, you know what, I just want to see this show. But some of them knew that if they didn't get to him, the game would be over. The sick knew how sick they were. Right? They knew how sick they were. But they also knew where healing was. For many of them, that was it. This is why they worked so hard to get to Jesus. This is probably why they inconvenienced other people and said, hey, could you please get me to Jesus? Could you please get me to Jesus? I know you've got a life to live, but there's 40 miles away from here, there's a guy who's known for healing and for teaching and for loving and for calling people. You've got to get me there. I mean, I think about that in my own life. Like, how would I have dealt with that interruption how would I have walked knowing that for some of these people, this was the last ditch effort? They knew they were sick, but they also knew where they could find healing. What about this shrieking demon people? Um, middle schoolers asked the best questions. Uh, at one of, when there was one time we were walking through this, this story in particular. Demon yells out, you are the son of God. And one of the middle schoolers was like, so is that demon saved? Some of y'all never thought that before. Middle schoolers do. He's like, so is that demon now like a believer? Did he like come to Christ? Should I pray for the devil? Should I? I mean, it's crazy. Like all these questions that you get and you're like, welcome to youth ministry. Um, but, but really the beauty of this picture of Jesus shutting this demon down, this shrieking, you are the son of God. I don't know how it would sound, but really it's a shrieking sound. Why didn't Jesus just go, yeah, I'm cool with you announcing who I am. Why didn't Jesus go, you right, I'm the son of God. Why didn't he just respond that way? He's like, yeah, sucker, you know, I am, I'm him. But he said, zip it and be gone. 
There's a couple of reasons. There's a lot of, there's a lot of you know, people that kind of look at the, the whole text of Scripture and they go, there's a reason why. I mean, because firstly, he's not going to allow the privilege the, the, to announce him to these demons. That privilege given to us. To announce that Jesus is who he says he is was not for the demons. He also was not content with an earthly throne. People, when they hear these giant statements, they go, oh, then let's get this dude in charge. Let's get this guy rolling and let's get this guy running things. We'll be fine if he's in charge. And Jesus didn't come to establish this earthly kingdom. And one of the last reasons we see is because Jesus was content and submitted to the timeline of God. He was not going to announce anything that was not time to be announced. What an amazing patience. What an amazing testimony to him loving the Father and being good with whatever God's plan is. Wherever he's leading, whatever he's saying, I'm good with. And these demons were not going to have a part in it. Now to keep in mind, you are the Son of God. That's six words. You are the Son of God. So why wouldn't that take when it comes to salvation? Because it's just a statement made. Six words made as a matter of fact. Six words made out of fear because the demons, they say they believe, but they tremble. And so why is the demon statement of you are the Son of God different than Peter's you are the Son of God? Because one was made out of fear and matter of fact, the other was made out of desperation and confession. You are who you say you are. And if you're not, I'm done. Peter's confession was different than just saying six words. It came from a place in his heart of saying, you have to be him because if you're not, I'm done. So who does get to announce this Jesus. Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Afterward, Jesus went up on a mountain and called out the ones he wanted to go with him, and they came to him. Then he appointed 12 of them and called them his apostles. They were to accompany him, and he would send them out to preach, giving them authority to cast out demons. These are the 12 he chose. Simon, whom he named Peter, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, but Jesus nicknamed them the sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed them. See, there's some of us, and unfortunately the church has kind of done this thing where we take this, this pedestal and we put certain believers on this pedestal. We've said, they're the missionaries. There's the Lottie Moons. You know, there's the, all the other people that we do, we name offerings after and organizations after. These are those guys, you know, there's this, this person who that's them. But what we're seeing here in Jesus' calling of the disciples is a foundational understanding of what it means to follow Christ. What it means to be his. We see Jesus first call them and they're to accompany him. To be with him. Like, I don't think we get that. Sometimes I think we're ready to be sent out, but we don't want to be with him. We don't want to sit with him. We don't want to learn of him. We don't want to know how he moves, know what he thinks, know how he speaks. We just want to go and go. 
But the reality is with these, with these disciples, with these apostles, what was going to be absolutely crucial in the message that they would take to the world was that they were with Jesus. They sat with him. They ate with him. They listened to him. They learned from him. And he sent them out. Now, yes, I do know there were the times that they were called to go out into Israel and be specific about some of these things, preaching the good news, casting out demons, but it doesn't stop there. For you and I as Christ followers, this is the foundational understanding of what it means to be his. The posture that Jesus took, you and I also take. John chapter 12, starting in verse 44, Jesus is saying these things. Jesus shouted to the crowds. He shouted to the crowds. If you trust me, you are trusting not only me, but also God who sent me. For when you see me, you are seeing the one who sent me. I have come as a light to shine in the dark world so that all who put their trust in me will no longer remain in the dark. I will not judge those who hear me but don't obey me, for I have come to save the world and not to judge it. But all who reject me and my message will be judged on the day of judgment by the truth I have spoken. I don't speak on my own authority. The Father who sent me has commanded me what to say and how to say it. And I know his commands lead to eternal life. So I say whatever the Father tells me to say. Can you imagine being in the crowd that day when Jesus shouted out? I know that my Father's words lead to eternal life. I know every word he says leads people to life. So that's all I'm going to say. Do we think that? Do we think that about God's word? I'd like to say we think yes, but we probably don't. It's because we live in a culture that suggests otherwise too, right? Not everything God says leads to life. I mean, this thing, we should be able to make decisions about that. I mean, this thing, this topic, God really probably doesn't know what he's talking about. Right? And then we start to believe it. Right? We do. We go, you know what? I'm not so sure every word God says leads to life. I think 70% of God's words lead to life. Right? Percentages? Because there's a lot of competing voices today, aren't there? That's why I think Jesus shouted these words. It's got to be louder. It's got to have some force behind it. Because we're really slow to listen, aren't we? But Jesus shouted, And I know His commands lead to eternal life. So I'm only going to say what He says. See, this, this, this calling of the disciples, this calling of the apostles is a beautiful picture of the life Jesus intends for those he calls. Be with me. Learn from me. 
Now say and do all that I have said and done. Not just those that there are offerings named for, but every single one of us who would find us wrapped into this story that is bigger than us. In John 20, 21, again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. What did the apostles say? What were they supposed to say? What do we say? What do, what did the, what do we see the letters in the New Testament saying? Believe Jesus. Look on Jesus. See Jesus. He's calling us out of darkness. He's come to save the world, not to condemn it. He speaks truth. He commands, his commands lead to life. Same thing. That's what we're invited to live and speak. Just as the apostles were sent, just as they spent time with Jesus, just as they learned from Jesus, so you and I are invited into that same life. Although you and I can't understand what it might have been like for those apostles to be called out, we've talked about there were fishermen, they were ordinary, they were normal, they were not the highest educated, they were not the smartest or most athletic, they did not get the awards or the accolades. Um, but in the, the Bible miniseries, they did this thing where they took some creative license at the calling of Matthew. And I've always been fascinated by Matthew's calling and him being one that was invited into this story because if you're, you know, tax gatherer, sinner type personality, you get Matthew. You're like, I get it. I get being that guy. And so what they did was they kind of combined one of Jesus' more famous parables between the tax gatherer and the Pharisee and Matthew's calling. And I thought it was a beautiful picture. So here you go. You should keep your distance from Two men went to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, and the other one a tax collector. The Pharisee prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Thieves, adulterers, or this tax collector. But the tax collector didn't even look up to heaven. He said, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. God bless the tax collector. Not the Pharisee. Anyone who praises himself for be humbled. And anyone who humbles himself will be praised. Matthew, come.
sinners to follow him. One has to wonder of the sins committed by his other followers. <laughs> that, I love that look that that guy's given at the last second. He's like, look, I know I'm fresh into this following Jesus thing. I'll still slap you. <laughs> so it, it's an awesome look. It's, it's a great look. But, I, you know, you can't really, obviously, we can't relate to exactly the situation or the scenario, but we do know that these men were not the, the cream of the crop. We know they weren't seen as special. They had probably slapped the label on themselves that this is my life. Whatever it is, I'm in it, and I'm, this is it. I'm done. I'm just going to be resolved to be done, and I'm just going to go through the motions, and then Jesus interrupts everything. You know, one of the more fascinating things about this list of the names that Jesus called, I just went through all the Gospels and was like, I want to compare the lists and see what names are used when. Because, you know, there are different names and they go by different names. And, and one of the things that's interesting is that Matthew goes between Levi and Matthew. Levi actually means added or taken up. And it's this pointing to his being added to the 12 disciples. So Levi is this cool name, like, man, I want to be called Levi. I want, yes, I was, that points to me being added to the 12. I was taken up. I was chosen. I was like, I was not the last pick that day. Everything great for Levi. But if you go to Matthew's gospel, the one that he pens, do you know the name that you will see in that list? Not Levi, but you see Matthew, the tax collector. Are you following me here? Like Matthew's saying, look, if Jesus can call me, he can call anybody. If Jesus can reach to me and involve me in this story, a dirty tax collector, hated by my people, hated by the culture, and he calls me to follow him, he can call anybody. <laughs> That's an example of grace. It's not a trophy. That's not a look at me. Jesus, I'm raising my hand and I have the resume and I have the recommendations to back me up. You need me on your team. One of the things we learn about Jesus in this gospel is very simply that he calls who he calls. He calls who he calls. And it's his grace and it's his mercy, and it's his call. And the call that he extended to the disciples then, come, be with me, learn from me, go. Come, be with me, learn from me, go. Is a call that every single one of us is invited into at Jesus' word. Now, again, like I said, middle schoolers ask great questions. And so they typically will ask, well, what happens to all the disciples? What happens to them? I mean, these were the dudes. They got picked first. They were not last. I want on that dodgeball team. I want that feeling. I want to know. Peter was crucified 30 years after Jesus died and rose. He didn't see himself fit to be killed as Jesus, so he asked to be crucified upside down. James, the brother of John, was sentenced to death by beheading. Um, one historian records that the accuser of James, actually so moved by James's not denying Jesus, at the chopping block, repented, confessed Christ, and was killed next to James 
because he was so convinced that Jesus rose from the dead. John, the other son of thunder, didn't die a martyr's death, but he lived a martyr's life, surviving being boiled and exiled. Andrew was beaten and not nailed to a cross, but tied to a cross so his death would take longer. The joke was on them because he preached the gospel longer from this cross. Philip was imprisoned, scourged, crucified. Bartholomew, although we don't really have any evidence, but church tradition speaks that he actually made it to India, translated the gospel of Matthew for these people, and was later beaten and crucified. Matthew, the Matthew we've been talking about, about spent years in Jerusalem trans- writing this gospel so his people would understand Jesus and who he is in the big scheme of things. Later went on many missionary journeys and met his death at a sword for questioning the way a king was living. Thomas was run through with a spear. James, known as James the Less, right around 90 years old, was drugged by, by priests up on top of a church building, basically to say, if you don't deny Jesus, we will throw you off of this building and kill you. He did not deny Jesus. He was tossed from a building. Church history and tradition says that he survived that fall and then was preaching the gospel while his head was being beaten in with clubs. Thaddeus was crucified. Simon the Zealot, who was zealous for Jewish people to get out of Jewish, you know, being out from underneath someone's thumb, who became this zealot for people knowing the gospel, he was crucified. Matthias, Judas's replacement in the book of Acts, he, many think he was one of the 70 on that day. So he was with Jesus in the beginning. So he was replacing Judas. Church history suggests that he was either burned to death or stoned, then crucified. Saul, later named Paul, was beheaded under Nero's reign in Rome. Pick me. <laughs> Pick me, Jesus. I want to be on that team. Why no love for the apostles? When all they wanted to do was lay their lives down for people to know the truth of who Jesus is. They did not come with a sword. They did not come aggressively. They came loving people so that they would know who Jesus is. But see, the world has a problem with Jesus. A big problem with Jesus. Because as Jesus speaks, we hear that this message of salvation is by faith alone. And most communities thought this was ridiculous. That it was weak and it was infantile. And Christians were sick in the head. The gospel announcement suggests that we are sinful and we need rescue. People don't like to be told they need to be rescued. People like to be told they can rescue themselves. Jesus challenges all of our idols and our comforts. Jesus points to a new way of living that involves us putting down an old way of living. Why no love for the apostles? That's why. Doesn't seem like that big of a deal, but this is what baffles me about the gospel, is that you can have a people ready to kill Jesus. And with the same Jesus, you have a people ready to die for Jesus. I don't understand that. But what I see in the scripture is that Jesus calls who he calls. It's his grace 
It's not our excuse. It's not our accolades. It's not our failures that will keep us from him. And it's not our successes that will get us to him. He calls who he calls. Church fathers and historians and theologians have said that we, as the church today, need to thank God for the death that the apostles died. Because had they denied Jesus, had they recanted, had they said, never mind, would we be here today? Chuck Colson said one of the greatest evidences for the resurrection is the death of the apostles. He says it this way, I know the resurrection is a fact. Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Do you think the apostles thought at their death 2,000 years later we would be discussing that death? as one of the main evidences for the resurrection of Jesus, the thing that they proclaimed so boldly. They could not have had a clue. You know, as the band comes and we, we finish our time together, just in response and worship, these men, were they all crazy? We have no recorded history suggesting that they were. Could they all have lied, like made a pact together to lie this whole way out? The evidence is swing way in the other direction for that. Now granted, I know a human heart's not necessarily going to look at all the evidences to answer his call. But one of the things we know about these disciples is that they counted the costs, they heard the call, they were with Jesus, they learned from Jesus, and at Jesus' resurrection, it affirmed everything they had learned and seen. And they went. This is what you're invited to. So this morning, I guess my, my question to you is have you heard him call? Have you answered the call to just be with him? And as you sit with him and you learn from him, have you answered that call to go because you are convinced every word he speaks leads to eternal life so you will only say what he says? This is not the call for those who will one day have offerings named after them. This is the call for those of us who will disappear into obscurity but have seen Jesus' call worth it and the opportunity to invite others to know that same life. As we close this morning, I'm just going to ask you, are you making excuses? Because Matthew decided to say, you know what? 
I'm just going to rip the band-aid right off. I want everybody to know Matthew the tax collector was the one who got called by Jesus. Are you ready to tell that story? Or are you still thinking, i got to get that background check, um, resume, reference, recommendation form filled out, and then maybe I can answer Jesus' call to come to him? Or are you ready to say, have mercy on me, sinner? That's what we're invited to respond to him with. It's all your mercy. It's your grace. You've called. I'm going to answer. Jesus, I ask that in these moments, your church would hear you call. And we would recognize that there is no good thing that qualifies me to be called by you. And there is no sinful thing that will keep me from being called by you. You call who you call. And as Matthew responded, have mercy on me, a sinner. May we be led by you, learn from you, and may it cause in us a desire to remain a sent people, bought at a very high price. We are not our own. It's in your name we pray all these things. Amen.